great pleasure to introduce Harry Rutter. Harry is an innovator <coughs> and an activist, a cyclist, um, and he's going to talk about systems, which obviously involve cycles of different kinds. Um, he was the first director of the National University Observatory. Um, he um, set up and oversaw the start of the National Child Measurement Program in the UK, um, which, is, which is the basis for understanding diversity in childhood obesity levels and how they're changing in the UK now. Um, he's now um, at the um, London School of Hygiene and Tropical Medicine and he's advisor to Public Health England on matters of obesity. Uh, we share a common interest in ideas about complexity and Harry's going to give us a terrific talk. Thank you. Thanks very much. So, where do I start? Um, Stanley and I started having conversations about these things five years ago, probably, something like that, uh, on the back of the Foresight um, report. And ever since then, there's been an ongoing dialogue, uh, not just with Stanley, but with a whole load of different people. And uh, I came and gave a talk here probably a couple of years ago. Some of these ideas may be very similar. Some of them, I'm sure, have moved on, because this is a field where I'm certainly learning all the time. Um, and uh, I think we all probably need to learn all the time. So, this is probably a graph I used about two years ago when I came here, and I'm sorry to say that nothing much has changed yet. I think that as far as obesity is concerned, we're still well over on the left-hand side of this. We've got a pretty good understanding in some domains of what is going on, but when it comes to the real-world policy side of things and what we actually do and how we get change to happen, we're still very much operating at the, the, the hunch-based, the speculative uh, side of this chart. But the aim, uh, certainly my aim, is that as time goes on, we learn from what we do. So of course we do these things, we've got to act, but let's learn from our actions and feed that into an evidence base, whatever that may look like, so that over time the red line goes down and the blue line goes up. This chart I'm, I'm finding, or this diagram, I'm finding increasingly useful. Uh, this comes from a paper in the Lancet, from the Lancet series of 2011 by Boyd Swinburne and others. And it, broadly it shows a spectrum from individual level actions through neighbourhood and community level stuff up to upstream policy level actions to tackle obesity. So from individual on one side, population, upstream stuff on the other. And the really important thing about this uh, diagram, I think, is this wedge at the bottom, which is labelled population effects and political difficulty. So there's all sorts of stuff we've got over on this side that works pretty well. In the right patients, bariatric surgery is highly effective. But the population level impact of that is pretty small. It's politically pretty easy to do. The other thing that I think um, Boyd and others left off here was the question about how hard it is to research these things. It is relatively straightforward to do research on individual one-to-one -one interventions with patients. It gets a bit messier when you're looking at um, large groups of things and population level or neighbourhood level weight management interventions. But if you don't have a fat tax in place, it's quite hard to measure its effectiveness. 
On top of which, there's a whole lot of other methodological uh, factors in terms of the confounders and the complexity of the system that make it increasingly uh, difficult to do research, certainly from a biomedical perspective, as we move from that side to this side. One of the results of that is that the evidence base is hugely skewed over to this side of the diagram. So where there is evidence, it tends to be on this side, and it tends not to be on this side. So I spent some of my time as an advisor to Public Health England, and one of the stated aims of Public Health England is to be led by the evidence. Being led by the evidence means that you do this stuff. I think inherent in being led by the evidence is missing out on some of the things for which there is very strong theoretical and in some cases modelled evidence, but almost nothing in the way of empirical evidence. So the skew in the evidence base, it seems to me, skews the actions that we take, which is even more the case because these things are politically difficult. And getting things that are politically difficult into place, the standard challenge is showing the evidence that this is going to work. And I've got some examples to talk to, uh, to describe about that. There are other, other ways of looking at the same problem, I think. Uh, this is um, uh, Tom Frieden's uh, health promotion pyramid, which starts with socioeconomic factors at the bottom, moves up to individual level things like counselling and education at the top. Uh, and that, I think, is quite close in some ways to the Nuffield ladder of interventions, which is, starts at the bottom with highly politically acceptable things like do nothing or simply monitor the current situation, up to politically difficult things such as eliminate choice with, with really tight regulation and a spectrum <coughs> in between. And in some ways, I think, if you tip, tip these things on their sides, both the health promotion pyramid and uh, the, uh, the, the Nuffield ladder, you can see how they, they lie across this. So the Nuffield ladder has the relatively uncontentious things at this side and the much more contentious things that in general will involve regulation and doing the physically difficult things. Uh, a whole load of drivers acting together that are pushing us over to an individual level approach. Not just the political ideology of individualism. And I'd like to go on a bit more about what I've called the dangerous olive of evidence. And I called it an olive because I was sitting at a conference in Portugal and there was a bowl of olives in front of me while I was having this thought. And uh, it seemed to me a helpful metaphor, but actually it's just a Venn diagram. And the flesh of the olive represents the totality of interventions we could put into place. All the things you could possibly do. In this case, for obesity. The olive is stuffed with a pepper that represents the interventions for which we have some evidence of effectiveness. And the pepper is stuffed with a little piece of garlic that represents the subset of interventions for which we have evidence of effectiveness, for which we also have evidence of cost-effectiveness. In general, we're told to do cost-effective interventions. That restricts us to the garlic. Now, in an evidence-rich domain, of course, these proportions would be very different you have a huge pepper, a tiny little bit of, uh, uh, of olive, and quite a big piece of garlic. But for obesity, where we're over on the, the left-hand side of that evidence trajectory chart, this is where the majority of action sits. Most of the things that we can and should be doing about obesity 
are things for which we don't have robust evidence. So how do we operate with this kind of uncertainty where there's a whole load of things that are potentially, and in many cases likely to be beneficial, sitting here, but we can't justify them in terms of effectiveness, let alone evidence of cost-effectiveness. And one of the tools we've been working on, uh, originally, originally in the National Obesity Observatory, which is now part of Public Health England, one of the tools we've worked on is something that allows us to operate in this, in this domain of uncertainty. Uh, it allows you to take some uh, people in, working in, uh, in local authorities to make some reasonable, robust and transparent assumptions about the effectiveness, the duration of effect uh, and, and so on, uh, link that to the characteristics of the population they're putting an intervention into place for, and make some reasonable estimates uh, of the likely benefit uh, in economic terms. And uh, the aim would be that that would be done in a very open and transparent way. Uh, you could then decide whether or not you're going to put your intervention into place. If you do, you then evaluate it, learn from the evaluation, test whether your assumptions were reasonable or not, uh, and adjust them for the next iteration. So, that's all very straightforward. But what about this idea of complexity, this idea of wicked problems? Um, it's a rather odd name, and uh, the, the, the name wicked, uh, and it came from this paper back in, when was it, 1973, um, written on Weber, but it, I think it's a really useful concept, and it's one that I think often gets missed and misunderstood. Uh, and if I have one message about thinking about things as complex problems, it's really to get to grips with this notion of what a wicked problem is. That it is not, in general, something to which there is a solution. There's just a range of possible ways in which that system could be configured, and some have a, a more beneficial mix of outcomes than others. So, the biggest challenge that I think I come across uh, in work on obesity is people trying to be over-reductionist about it, to, be, to oversimplify the problem. So, one way to think about it is, is to think about rocket science. So this is rocket science. Uh, this is a relativity calculator for a relativistic photon rocket. Does anyone know what that is? I certainly don't. Uh, there's a little blue bar on the side that lets you see just how long this page is if you were to scroll all the way down. But presumably, if you follow this calculation all the way to the bottom, uh, you'll know what sums to do to make a relativistic photon rocket. This is a Saturn V rocket, probably a bit simpler than a relativistic photon rocket, uh, but it's, yeah, it's quite complicated. Um, I imagine there's a big thick book somewhere in NASA that tells you how to put all these things together. And if you, with a, not on your own clearly, but with a team of people, could put one of these things together and get all the measurements right and do the sums right, you can put three people in that little cone at the top, you can send them to the moon, and you know exactly where to pick them up from when they land back in the ocean. It is an incredibly complicated system. It's an incredibly complicated device. But it's controllable. It is predictable. It is manageable. The Afghan war is a different kind of problem. However much you know about popular support or narcotics or tribal governance, 
or whatever ANSF is, however much you know about any of those things, you don't know where the next roadside bomb is going to come from. Which is not the same as saying that there is nothing you can do about roadside bombs. There's all sorts of things you can do about them, some of which will come from knowing about tribal governance and government capacity and so on. So this is a system that can't be controlled, but it can be influenced. One can certainly affect it, but it's not a linear, start here, go to there, controllable, predictable system. I have to use it, don't I? There are, of course, similarities between the map of the Afghan war and the map of the obesity system. Whatever one thinks about this map, and there are all sorts of perfectly legitimate criticisms of it, for me, it has one use above all else. Does anyone not know this map? Whatever one thinks about this, uh, the single most important message, as far as I'm concerned, is that it's a mess. And there are lines all over it linking things. Broadly, we've got physical activity over here, uh, diet nutrition over here, biological stuff and genetics down here, and psychology and uh, social stuff at the top. And in general, we've got energy balance in the middle with, with uh, individual level determinants of behaviours in the inner ring and environmental factors influencing them in the outer ring. Does anyone other than Charlie know why there is relatively little on physical activity rather than diet? Go on. I'm going to take a very rude guess because obesity gets a lot more news coverage than physical activity. Good suggestion. But the real reason is that more people turned up to that workshop. Which I think is a really important fact that hasn't been disseminated. I don't think it's <coughs> it, it's just not widely known. Because it, it really emphasises that this doesn't represent reality. This isn't a map of the real situation. It's just a tool for thinking about it. And as a tool, I think it's really helpful to understand that if you go to the gym, you have a Mars bar on the way out there are feedback loops all around this system. If we look at questions around physical activity and we don't think about people's compensatory eating behaviours, we kind of miss the point in terms of obesity. But actually, much research tends to focus, understandably, on its own particular area. The other thing that this engenders is a sense of nihilism and hopelessness, because people think this is so complex so messy, so confusing, no one can ever get to grips with it. How on earth can I hope to deal with this when all I deal with is I know this node really well. And I think that's fine, because there's almost no one who really needs to get to grips with the whole thing. It's fine if this is your area of expertise, or this is your area of expertise, or this is your area of expertise. That's fine, that's appropriate. Keep working in your area of expertise. But, but at least be aware that this thing exists and, where appropriate, work with other people, the small number of other people whose job it is to try and get to grips with the whole thing. I've been working with this map. I was using this map before it was published. I've been working with this for years. I've never, I've never counted all the nodes. I don't know what all the nodes are because that's not really the point. It, it's just, it's a picture. It's a representation. It's not reality. And this whole idea of complexity is something that, that other sectors, other domains, have been getting to grips with for years. It's just we're seeing it as something new within, within health and public health. 
so the OECD have looking at, been looking at it in terms of public policy, uh, it features in some aspects of uh, economics, uh, it's been used in the military, hence that Afghan war map, and so on. Uh, this, um, this little pamphlet, which is a free download, um, is, I think, I mean, I haven't reread it for some time now, but for me has been one of the really influential things I've read. Uh, and it's a report that was commissioned by Demos from a guy called Jake Chapman, uh, who wrote it a few years ago, and there's a second edition, came out a few years later. And it's really aimed at policymakers to get them to think differently about the way policy is put together. Not think about policy in terms of things like, and he gets into the language, the delivery chain, um, that sort of thing. The idea that there is a linear chain of cause and effect, when actually what we have is, is the need to deal with messy problems that may not work quite as you expect them. So don't just ignore unintended consequences, work out how to grapple with them. Following on from that, I think, is something about the ways in which we do research and the ways in which we understand these problems ourselves. And you'll all have heard the hoo-ha about, I think he's still in post, isn't he? De Blasio doesn't take over for a while, Mayor Bloomberg. Um, but Bloomberg's attempt to get rid of these gigantic soda containers in New York City. Uh, a move that failed for, I think, slightly arcane legal reasons about the limits of the... Uh, uh, the limits of what the uh, department, the New York City department was able to do. But one of the objections really pushed by industry was there is no evidence that banning giant soda containers will reduce the prevalence of obesity in New York City. Well, of course it won't. Who on earth would think that it would on its own? This is just one small piece in a gigantic jigsaw puzzle. Why would changing one small piece in a gigantic jigsaw puzzle affect the entire outcome? I, I just I think it would be naive to expect it to, but in some ways I think we've set ourselves up for that criticism and set ourselves up for that retort from the industry with the way in which we focused on, on the evidence. Now, evidence is a really difficult word and it means lots of different things in lots of different contexts to lots of different people, but what I mean here is that there has been a focus and I get sent research proposals to review I see the calls that come out from the research funders. And there's this huge focus on putting an intervention into place and being able to demonstrate an outcome from it in terms of obesity. And the likelihood of being able to do that with interventions at the scale that we are seeing in general, and certainly at the scale that are being funded or politically supported, is almost nil which doesn't mean we shouldn't do them. I think we need to shift away from this idea of... Uh, I, I try and catch it in terms of necessity and sufficiency. So let's move away from an idea that this intervention is sufficient on its own to make a difference and think instead whether it is a necessary or valuable part of a set of contributions that could help to shift the system. Does that make sense? Um, one of the other things that um, gets a lot of attention, in fact I co-authored a briefing by Public Health England that was published yesterday, looking at uh, using planning law to uh, get fast food restaurants away from uh, near schools, among other things. 
there's a lot of attention on this, and uh, people talk about <laughs> people talk about a five-minute buffer, so that kids uh, can't get to a place within five minutes walk of a school. And uh, lots of the literature describes this as a 400-meter buffer, but uh, that must be teenager walking speed, is all I can think, because actually it should be something more like 800 meters. Um, but the point really is about this idea that quite a few local authorities, some, several in London, uh, have moved, using their planning law, to prevent the opening of fast food outlets near schools, or restrict their opening hours so that they can't open while the kids are coming out of school. And the, some of these planning uh, attempts have failed and have gone to appeal and failed at appeal because one of the things that is being required of them is to be able to demonstrate that stopping that one chicken shop from opening is going to have an impact on the prevalence of obesity. We need to flip it round. There should be a precautionary principle and the onus should be placed on the, the person proposing the development to be able to show beyond reasonable doubt that they are not going to have a negative impact on health. Uh, but that requires an entire paradigm shift in the way planning law operates. The other thing I think about uh, this whole business of uh, preventing fast food restaurants near schools is that there is an expectation that this will have an impact and people are being required to um, project this this will have an impact on the prevalence of obesity in the affected schools. Again, I think that is exceptionally unlikely, except in some rather extreme cases. And, and I would argue that uh, using planning law and local authorities working to remove fast food restaurants from outside schools is something that we should not think about in terms of linear cause and effect, but actually view it as, a, as a, uh, an approach that represents disruption to the system. So think about it as a system-level uh, action that represents political engagement and community engagement and perhaps the first step in a whole set of things that could happen within a local area rather than just looking at the number of hamburgers that kids are consuming between the hours of nine and five. So, so reconceptualize the intervention as a system-level intervention not as an individual level intervention. You don't need to read all this. This is just something from, I, I gave a talk in Ireland and, and this chap, uh, Mike Gibney, was cited and he's got a blog and he said, he was talking about sugar-sweetened beverage taxes. And he's come up with the statement that there are intervention studies and meta-analyses uh, and the evidence is weak that taxes on sugar-sweetened drinks would have any effect. And to suggest that we trust these data so much we're fully confident that these uh, fiscal measures will be positive, is wrong and is bad science. So he's coming at it from a biomedical, prove linear cause and effect perspective. Now, some of our friends have recently published in the BMJ uh, the, uh, the results of a modelling exercise that have shown the potential significant impacts of a 20% tax on sugar-sweetened beverages. I don't know because this only came out last week, but I don't know what Mike Gibney would say to that. What does that count as? But this is the kind of evidence that we need. If you think back to that Boyd-Swinburne diagram, this is the kind of evidence that fits on the left-hand side of that diagram. Because we can't get decent objective data on this. So let's model it. I've got another point about modelling that I'll come back to. 
But I think this is exactly the kind of evidence that we need to be using and working with. So what's the gold standard? So many of you will be familiar with the work of Ben Goldacre, who uh, has been really pushing for an improvement uh, in the quality of scientific uh, investigation and scientific study, a uh, huge proponent of uh, randomised controlled trials uh, of public policy. Uh, I think one of the things that I find really interesting about Ben Goldacre's work is he's a real proponent of this very um, uh, objective take on evidence, yet at the same time he's pointing out that the data we get from the pharmaceutical industry are hugely skewed. The evidence that gets put out there is, is hugely uh, biased and confounded because of publication bias, suppression of negative results, uh, particular ways in which things get presented, and so on. So even with what is presented as highly objective, gold standard, randomised controlled trials, we're still getting a skewed evidence base. But that's regarded by many as the gold standard. But for me, does anyone know the two most effective interventions for promoting walking and cycling? Come on. Two most effective interventions, promoting walking and cycling. They are living in the Netherlands <laughs> and living in Denmark. But you can't randomise Amsterdam. <laughs> Much as I'd love to. You can't do it. I've got a book about what they've done in Copenhagen since the 1960s, where they made brave forward-thinking political decisions to restrict the car and promote walking and cycling. They have factored the flow of wind over buildings and across plazas during winter into their urban design and planning, so that it's okay to walk across a plaza in, in a freezing January Copenhagen winter. And it's taken them decades. It's not the kind of thing that you can, you can ask these these biomedical questions about. It wasn't even done for health. Health's irrelevant. I don't, I'm not sure what health's mentioned in the book. Non-communicable diseases certainly aren't. That's not the point. This is about a different set of agendas to do with livability and quality of life and pollution and the environment. And, you know, I'd say it's all about health, but, but you know, it was put together by architects and planners and town designers and so on. So what's the gold standard here? And, and what's the level of evidence What's the nature of evidence that, that we should and could produce? And one of the things that we keep coming up against when we're looking at the, the built environment, the urban environment, is that the, the status quo is just there. There are dreadful, unsustainable, unhealthy housing developments being built all the time. No one is asking for an evidence base to demonstrate that that's how you should do it. But if we want to do something different, if we want, instead of having a road like that out there with a default 30 mile an hour speed limit, we want to change it, coming up against the status quo, we're supposed to provide robust evidence of Ben Goldacre type standards. There's something wrong in the decision making process. So I want to talk about unintended consequences. Here's a very simple system. Uh, let's just imagine that a new seatbelt law has been introduced. And one of the things about uh, safety, vehicle safety, or safety in general actually, is that safety benefits tend to be consumed as performance benefits. If you put ABS brakes in a car and people can stop in half the distance on snow, what do they do? They drive faster on snow and stop in the same distance. 
uh, if people wear helmets on their bicycles, in general, they take more risks. I certainly uh, deliberately uh, always wear a cycle. I don't always wear a cycle helmet on the roads, but I do always wear a cycle helmet off-road. My son Otto at the back is a fantastic downhill mountain biker. I've bought him all sorts of body armour and a full-face helmet, so that when he crashes, which he will, uh, he's relatively well protected. But it's so he can go faster. It's so he can do bigger jumps. He gets this much air. It's crazy. Um, so there's a pretty good um, basis for saying that as a result of risk compensation, if you increase people's perceived and real levels of safety, they're responsible to drive faster. If you drive faster, uh, there's also been evidence that people have a generally a fixed travel time budget, uh, Marchetti constant and so on. All other things being equal, if you're going faster, you can travel further. If you can travel further in the same time, you can live further from where you work or shop or study or play tennis or whatever. That makes trip lengths longer. That promotes sprawl. That means destinations get to move further and further apart. It becomes more and more likely that people will drive to them because it's less and less easy to walk or cycle to them. That reduces walking and cycling. At the same time, as speeds go up, uh, real and more importantly perceived danger goes up. Single biggest disincentive to walking and cycling is perceptions of danger. As a result, people are less likely to walk and cycle, and so on. So the question here is not, as far as I'm concerned, uh, some sort of simple calculus that says, do we save more, more lives by promoting seatbelts than we lose from obesity and NCDs at this end of the system? It's to understand that there are potentially unintended, unintended consequences and to mitigate against them. So this doesn't mean, I'm not for a moment advocating that we ban seatbelts, although sticking spikes in steering wheels is of course the best way of safety intervention. Uh, I'm not for a moment advocating that. I'm just saying that we should anticipate some of the unintended consequences and work out in advance how to mitigate against them. Almost done. Some of this is down to the people who are doing the work. Now, my guess is that we'll have a slightly unusual ratio here, but the fox to hedgehog ratio is, to me, quite an important thing to understand. So, the fox knows many things, but the hedgehog has one big idea. Now this came from an, uh, an essay by Isaiah Berlin about Tolstoy, and he nicked the idea from a Greek bloke whose name I can't remember. But the point of this is that academia is fundamentally geared towards hedgehogs. It's geared towards people who know things in depth. They know a small number of things really, really well. And we need that. We need hedgehogs. We need people who are experts, who are world experts in their field. But we also need some people who can make the links, who can act as foxes, who can know a little bit about lots of things, who can, who can hop from hedgehog to hedgehog, be nice to them, just, just be kind to them rather than try and eat them. Uh, uh, but, but hop around... Uh, move, move around and make the connections. But academic reward structures, academic structures don't reward that. You don't win a Nobel Prize for knowing a little bit about lots of things. You don't become a member of the Royal Society for knowing a little bit about lots of things. You, it, it's really hard to do. And, and I think there is something really challenging about the ways in which the ref works, the ways in which career structures work, and so on that actually militates against 
some of this systems thinking, some of these links, some of these connections. Uh, I mean, I'm probably a squirrel. When I grow up, I'd like to be a fox, but uh, so I'm biased. But um, I, I just think if we're going to start to to solve some of these problems, we need to we need to change some of these structural structural obstacles. So, uh, really, at the end, I, I just wanted to talk about some ways of thinking about this that I've come across. This is from a BMJ editorial from a few years ago by Holman and Laurie, where they were looking at the difference between uh, acute <coughs> disease and chronic disease. And broadly, this is, you know, this is uh, the way the health service have been set up, and this is the way they're saying, almost 15 years ago now, that it needs to be set up. And I've tried to apply those principles to, to knowledge. So to look at the biomedical knowledge perspective that I've certainly been, been trained in, been brought up in, and uh, relate that uh, effectively to the, to the historical acute care perspective, and then think about what, what a, 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 a shift from that to a more public health knowledge perspective might be. And I mean, you can read it for yourself, but I think some of, one of the things I wanted to come back to was this idea about modelling, because uh, I mean, I think the work that uh, got done up the hill on uh, sugar-sweetened beverage tax uh, came in the BMJ last week uh, is fantastic. But actually, I think there are better uses, even better uses for modelling. Because for me, modelling tends to get used for predictions. And I think that it may well be much more useful for understanding. Because... For some of these things, we are bound to get our predictions wrong. There's no way we can get them right. They are unavoidably wrong. But that doesn't mean they're not useful, and it doesn't mean that they can't help us to understand things. We can do what-if scenario planning, all that kind of thing. So I think something that shifts our modelling from, from imagining that we're predicting the future to helping <coughs> us to understand how the future might unroll uh, is potentially a really helpful way to do it. And... And I'd also argue that Occam's razor, the, the reduction to uh, the simplest, most elegant solution to any problem, while it certainly has value, for the kinds of things I'm talking about, is much less useful than his Swiss army knife. And we need to pull together a range of different tools and not only look, not always look, for the simplest, most elegant solution, but accept that sometimes things are going to be a bit messier and that's okay, and live with that. So, what do we do next? Well, okay, you don't need me to read this to you. Uh, I think of these points, the other one I'd like to raise is this question about policy-relevant research. So I, 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 I live and breathe the interface between the two. Half-time an academic, half-time working in Public Health England, and, and another half the time doing other things. And... I hear the phrase policy-relevant research quite a bit, but much of what gets described as policy-relevant research is actually research that is looking at topics that are of interest in the policy arena. They're not fundamentally looking at what are the barriers to this policy getting put into place? What are the opportunities? How can we make the case here? Now, I've done quite a lot of work on walking and cycling, and uh, I've been involved in a project called iConnect, and we presented a sort of final meeting of the project a month or so ago, and the woman from the Department for Transport came along, and she said, 
well, this is useless, because you haven't done anything looking at economic development and regeneration. And we said, well, that wasn't really on the agenda when we put this project together six years ago. The economy has changed since then, uh, and uh, the research agenda has changed since then. And she accepted that, but she's right. If you want to get policy to shift now, you've got to look at... You, you can't do it if what you're suggesting is going to harm the economy. That has to be part of it now. Now, it may be that the response is, actually, this is something that is morally right, and I'm not going to get involved in discussions about its impact on the economy, because this is just something we need to do. But at least that, that, that needs to be made explicit, I think. So I think policy relevance is very much about engaging with the politics and barriers, at least as much as it is about the topics and the themes that we look at. So I think my final conclusion would be really this one. It's... There are no simple answers here. There are no, there are certainly no silver bullets. I certainly don't have any answers. But if we're going to solve uh, problems like obesity, let alone things like climate change, we need to step back from trying to see the solutions as being simple, uh, easy, straightforward, and, and based on linear cause and effect. And we need to understand the nuances and the complexities uh, and the challenges that are involved in that. And we really need to grapple with them and enjoy it. Thanks very much.